Our scripture reading this morning continues our journey in the book of Ecclesiastes, verses 1 to 10 of chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. Give portions to seven, yes, to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all. But let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Thanks, Kevin. Morning. Great to be back with you after some time away. In 1896, gold was discovered in the Yukon along the Klondike River. Over the next year or so, it was reported in newspapers in Seattle and in San Francisco, and people got gold fever. So a whole bunch of people, 100,000 people, headed up toward the Klondike, toward the Yukon, so they could get in on this gold rush. As they headed up there, they found that there were two main ways through the Dai Valley or the over White Pass. Both were treacherous, difficult ways to go. And they found when they got to Canada that the Canadian Mounties said, well, you need enough food for a year. We don't want you starving, so you have to bring that much food with you. Because of all these difficulties, out of the 100,000 who went to get in on the gold rush, Only 30,000 actually made it to Dawson City, the center of the gold rush. But those 30,000 who made it there, when they got there, realized all the claims on all the rivers in that area, Bonanza, El Dorado, Klondike Rivers, had been taken. (laughs) There was no gold left. Some got rich, but those who came late missed out. What they ended up doing is either turning around and going home after losing whatever money they had, or a few stayed and got jobs in town or working for other miners. But basically, their dreams were dashed, and they ended up empty-handed. This true story is a good summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) Kohelet, the preacher, the gatherer, who's writing either as Solomon or for Solomon, has invested everything in pursuing the good life, the wonderful life under the sun. 
to strike it rich, to fulfill the longings of his heart in this world. And like Kohelet, this world keeps telling us, doesn't it, if you really can have the good life. You can have what you long for. If you just were smart enough, or if you just had the right knowledge, you could have the good life. Or if you just could have unlimited sex, don't we get that whispered in our ears? Then you'd have the good life. Or you could have unlimited pleasure, access to all the pleasures of the world. You'd have the good life. Or if you were rich enough, just had enough money to do whatever you wanted. Or maybe if you work hard enough, you could have the good life. But notice the conclusion of the preacher who is the only one really on earth who has really made that attempt to fulfill all those desires and had the resources to do it. And the book of Ecclesiastes is about his attempts to fulfill all that. And notice what his conclusion is at the beginning of the book. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says this. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Then, he says, I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun. We also not only tend to think if I could just fulfill my desires, then I would have the good life. We sometimes think, well, if I'm good enough. If I do the right thing, then maybe life will work out for me. Then maybe I'll have the good life then. But as most of us know, it doesn't really work out very well. The preacher explored that, too. And notice what he said in chapter 8, verse 14. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of of the righteous. I say this too is meaningless. In other words, he looked and he, he saw in, his, in life that bad things happen to good people. And good things happen to bad people. So life feels random and out of control, doesn't it? We can't guarantee that we can find the good life. No matter what we do, life is futile. You can't control it. It's vanity of vanities. So if we can't get the good life by pursuing pleasure and we can't control life by doing the right thing and therefore avoid suffering, then what do we do? Do our choices really matter? That's where the preacher, Kohelet Solomon, now leads us in these last three chapters 
of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's explored all of that and said it's all vanity. Now he says, is there a reason to live? Is there a way to live intentionally? Do our actions really matter? So now he encourages us to consider how we can live intentionally in a seemingly random world, a world that is under the sun. Pray with me. Lord, as we look at these last three chapters this next couple of weeks, I pray that we would be open in our own hearts before you about our own search for the good life, our longing to have life work out well and and how we respond to that, Lord. May, may we face the futility of all that search and may we hear from you how to live in a way that is meaningful, that has an impact for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the attitude of many, I think, in facing this kind of world, if we're, if we're really honest about it, that feels random and out of our control, the attitude of many is, well, if my choices don't matter, I may as well just live for myself and just try to be as happy as I can and just do my best to get out of life what I can. And the preacher, Solomon, says, you know what? Your choices do matter. Maybe not in the way you thought, but they do matter. And so he gives us four strong challenges, four strong encouragements in chapters 10 and 11 to encourage us to hang in there and live intentionally in this world. Chapter 10, his point is avoid folly. Avoid foolishness. It's all about the results of folly and what a mess folly is. Now, we need to define folly, though, don't we? Because in our modern world, we tend to think of folly as just foolishness, as not being very smart, just doing dumb things, right? But biblically, when you see a fool, when you see someone described as a fool or foolishness, what it really means is somebody who's living life as though God doesn't exist. They may even go to church. They may be, quote unquote, religious. But if they're living their lives as though God really doesn't intervene, God really doesn't matter, then biblically they're called a fool. It's the opposite of wisdom, right? Wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, the beginning of foolishness is saying there is no God. I'm going to live life according to my own designs, my own ideas. A friend of mine sent me a poem this week. It says this, <clears throat> two presidential candidates. They both want the big job, but they're but they are so unwantable, I thought I'd write in God. But then I had a chilling thought, and you just might agree, I think that if I wrote in God, they'd both claim, hey, that's me. <laughs> now, I'll let you decide if that really accurately describes our candidates, but I think it very accurately describes a fool. Because a fool is someone who says, you know what, I'm going to run my own life. If God's there, he's absent and I need to, he's not doing what I think he should do. And I'm going to take my life in my own hands and I am going to control my own life. 
It's easy to feel like we need to do that when life feels random and out of control. But the preacher, Kohelet, says, no, that's foolish. Avoid folly. And he gives us several reasons. Number one, in verse one, he says, folly corrupts the good. Notice verse one of chapter 10. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. (laughs) So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. What's he saying there? He says a person may have great gifts, may have great abilities, but if they have an area of their life that they're hanging on to for themselves and they're not submitting to God and they're living foolishly because of that, it corrupts everything else. It makes everything else fall apart. It makes everything else a mess. And you'll end up in trouble if you are trying to run your own life in that way. The bad will outweigh the good. We see it often in groups where, you know, maybe pretty good people, but somebody says, hey, let's go do this. And yeah, I promise we won't get caught. And the whole group gets corrupted by that attitude, by that perspective. It happens all the time. He wants us to avoid folly because folly corrupts the good. If you're hanging on to an area of your life that you think, God can have the rest of my life, but this area, I'm not, I'm not giving up. I'm going to run it my own life here. I'm going to hang on to this sin. I'm going to hang on to this resentment. I'm going to hang on to this unforgiveness. I'm going to hang on to this. It will affect the rest of your life, he says. Your life may smell like sweet perfume, but some dead flies in it will make the whole thing stink. Secondly, he says you should avoid folly because you can't hide folly. It's obvious. Notice verse 2 and following. A wise man's heart directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates to everyone he's a fool. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. He's using a variety of pictures here. And understand that the figurative pictures of Scripture, they jar us, right? And we look at them and go, what in the world is he talking about? They're there so that we'll meditate on him and think about it. What is he getting at so that the truth actually penetrates more deeply into your heart through these word pictures? And I think as we look at these, we see that what he's saying is, uh, now I'm mostly left-handed. So when he says veers to the left, I could get offended by that, right? (laughs) That a fool veers to the left. But what is he saying? Well, of course, in the Middle Eastern world, the right is the clean side, the good side, and left is the unclean side. I was in India and I was having dinner at someone's house and uh, they dumped some leaves on the for my plate on the table and then they threw some rice on it and some uh, yogurt and some stuff and no utensils so you're just supposed to start eating it i started eating with my left hand they laughed and said no no unclean unclean you don't eat with your left hand you only eat with your right you see that's the perspective and what he's saying is that foolishness will always eventually come out like when a fool walks down the road, eventually you have in, you see it in the way he lives his life. And he will always veer towards the wrong. 
You can't hide it. It's obvious in your life. You can't hide sin. It will eventually show up in your life. My best friend through college, he was my roommate for three years in college and my first year of seminary until we both got married and um, just uh, a great friend of mine. But there were areas of his life he'd never, ever given to the Lord. He wanted to run his own life. And later on, when he had a secular job, he had a beautiful family, several daughters. But he started having an affair with the woman at work. And eventually left his family, blew apart his kids' lives, his family. It was a mess. You see, foolishness eventually shows up. He had foolishness in his heart that he wasn't willing to give up. And it's true, way too often his life veered to the left. Folly is obvious, so eventually it will come out. So the preacher says, don't hang on to it. Don't let it live in your life. Avoid folly. Then he goes on to say, and folly should be avoided because it's, a, it's especially evil in leaders. And if you have any position of leadership, it's especially evil. Notice verse 5 and following. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. And down in verse 16. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. He's describing a kind of leadership that says, you know what? I'm a leader and it's all about me. It's what I can get out of it. And so they feast in the morning. It's they're feeding their own pleasures through their position. And we've seen it worldwide way too often that folly is especially evil in leaders, kings and leaders who are immature and selfish and narcissistic do great harm to a nation. The viewpoint of Scripture is always that the most important thing about a leader is godly character. Character that God can guide and direct their hearts because they're looking to God for wisdom. That is most important according to Scripture, godly character. Putting a fool into office, this says... Someone who rejects God, who doesn't look to God for leadership, will do great harm to a nation. Now, Solomon lived this out, didn't he? Talk about a terrible example of this. Solomon, who was the wisest man in the world, what did he do later in his life? He became more and more foolish, as we see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He just gave himself over to foolishness and what happened his son blew the kingdom apart. It became two nations. They couldn't get along. Those two nations fought for the next several hundred years until the northern kingdom, Israel, was destroyed by Assyria. Solomon actually lived this out. I believe when God puts a fool in leadership, it's often a way to judge a nation. So folly is especially bad in leadership. And then the final point he makes about folly, why we should avoid it, is that it's always going to be destructive in your life eventually. 
Verse 8, he says, he who digs a pit may fall into it and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And he who splits logs may be endangered by them. Now, these are not bad things to dig a pit, to whatever. But I think he says, someone who lives as a fool who says, yeah, but I'm going to live my life my way apart from God. I'm not going to depend on him and trust him and look to him for guidance and leadership. The good things we do in life end up not working out so well. That we end up getting hurt by those very things. Folly is destructive in your life. You do reap what you sow. Life ultimately, actually, is not random. The world will work against someone who lives a life of folly. You see, God really has created this as a moral universe. And whether you live according to his purposes or against them will determine how ultimately your life goes. Not a, life may seem random, but it is not. And a fool's words will consume them. Their work will in the end be fruitless and exhausting, he goes on to say in this chapter. So do you want to live well in a confusing world that feels random? First, avoid folly. Make sure that God is central in your life. Living life according to yourself, with yourself at the center of the universe, will be awful. And notice what he says in verse 13 in conclusion. The beginning of his talking, talking about a fool, is folly. And the end of it is wicked madness. I think what the preacher's saying is that if you live life apart from God and you say, no, I, I think I know what's best. I'm going to live life my way. It's really a form of insanity, of madness. Because you're, you're living against the God who created you. You're living against the way the whole universe is designed and it's complete madness to do that. So he says, don't be insane. Live in a way where you avoid folly. So then what should we do? Now he gives in chapter 11, three positive responses we can have to living in this kind of world that feels random to us. Number one, be generous, be generous. Kevin just read these verses, but I want to highlight verse one again. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters for you will find it after many days. That's a powerful imagery, I think, because doesn't this seem like totally wasteful? If you've ever fed ducks in a, in a pond or in a river or something, you know, you take your bread and throw it out there and it gets soggy and it sinks and they may find it, they may not. But, but what a waste, right? Oh, but notice what he says. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters for you will find it after many days. What is he saying? I think he's saying... Be generous. Be so generous that it looks wasteful. Be so generous that it's like throwing bread out on waters that doesn't look like you're going to get any return from it. And he says, notice what God promises. It will return to you. It may be after many days. Now, what's he saying? I don't think he's talking about financial return. I think he's simply saying being generous is an act of faith 
where you trust that living a generous life where I share freely what I have and I don't hold back, God will bless your life. Now, I think this is really critical because it's easy for us to be calculating, right? Now, I understand good stewardship of our resources. That's good, right? There's plenty of charitable organizations that are ripoffs out there that 80, 90, 100% of what you give goes back into fundraising and all that. And we, we don't want to be wasteful. We want to be good stewards to what we give. I, I get all that. But I think we're way too calculating. I know for my own heart, I, as I've thought about this passage, he's saying, be much freer. Give away what you have. And then notice verse 2 where he says, divide your portion to seven, even to eight, for you don't know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If you are in charge and you're living a life where you have to figure out and control your life, then you've got to try to figure out what misfortunes might happen to you. And you have to make sure you have insurance and you have to make sure that you have enough resources to handle whatever misfortune comes, right? So you save a bunch of money and, and you're all ready for retirement and you get cancer. Notice what he says. You don't know what misfortune's coming. And if you live in a way where you're trying to hoard your resources to make sure you avoid any misfortune, you're not living as God would call you to live. I'm not saying not don't have insurance, whatever. You, there's things we have to do in this world. I, under, I get all that. But I like what he says here. Divide your resources in seven or in eight. In other words, you know, keep a portion for yourself to meet your needs. But give a lot away. Live generously. Look for ways to meet needs around you. Giving, give freely to all kinds of needs. Because verse 3, if the clouds are full, they pour rain on the earth. And wherever a tree, whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. What's he saying? I think he's saying, we are clouds. We are trees. We're clouds that he's poured into. He's blessed us. And he's saying, so rain. Rain on the earth. Rain on the needy around you. Look for ways to pour out what God's given you on other lives. Isn't that what Jesus said in John chapter 7? Come to me, all you are thirsty, and drink, and I will give you, and out of you will flow rivers of living water so others can drink. He pours into us so we can satisfy others. We're like trees. Wherever he's placed you, wherever you've fallen, there you lie. There you are. So look for where God has placed you. He chose you to be here in this time and place in history. And he's saying, look around you for the needs that are around you. It's really interesting to me that God is bringing lots of refugees to live right in our neighborhood, right in our area. And there's a lot of poor people around here. And the ministries we have that reach out to the poor, giving them clothing, giving them food, etc., are really taxed to the limit because there's a lot of needs in our area. Those are wonderful things to give to, to bless others. Reaching out to refugees, to the food cupboard, to give money or food in the bulletin today, there's needs for the food cupboard. Those are wonderful things. Cast your bread on the waters. Help those around you. Be generous. 
That's how God wants us to live intentionally in a world that seems random. In other words, ask God to open your eyes and your wallets to the needs around you. And of course, Jesus is our greatest example, isn't he? He who is most generous, who gave up everything he had in heaven to become one of us and then to die a death of taking our sins on himself, giving up everything, even his life for us. If we're followers of Jesus, then how can we live any other way? That's our calling in a random world to live generously. So avoid folly. Be generous. And then thirdly, be faithful. Be faithful. Verse 4 through 6, I'm going to read those again. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So, sow your seed in the morning and don't be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Four times in those verses, it says, you don't know, you do not know, you don't know. <laughs> See, what happens, I think, is that some of us live this calculating life. We think, if I can just figure out life, if I can just figure out what's going on, I can make life work. I can, I can get enough to survive or I can whatever. And we don't act. We don't step out to do what God's calling us to do. And so, I think what he's saying here is he's, he's saying, don't live that kind of calculating life where you never move at all. We don't know what God's going to do. We don't see the activity of God completely. God's activity is like a shadow. And so what do we need to do? Sow in the morning, sow at night. Be faithful to do what God's called us to do. He's called us to be faithfully in the word to be faithfully meeting in fellowship, to be faithfully loving our spouses, to be faithfully loving our kids, to be faithful, to be honest and true to our word at work and with friendships and wherever we are, to serve others, to learn to love God and others more and more. You see, our world is in desperate need of trustworthy, faithful people, people who will do what they say. And who will stay true to the faith despite the obstacles. Two of our body here, Ron and Sandy Lewis, committed many, many years ago to go overseas to Papua New Guinea and work with a tribe and translate the word in their language. And they spent 35 years there giving their lives away. They were faithful to that vision that God gave them. And now they're retired and here and but they've had an incredible ministry because they were willing to be faithful over the long haul. One of my heroes is Abraham Lincoln, who went through incredible difficulty and pressure. And yet, in a time of great difficulty, he stayed faithful to the vision God had given him to eradicate slavery from the U.S. But of course, our greatest example is Jesus himself who didn't want to go to the cross, but in the end said, not my will, but yours be done. Father, I will stay true to you. 
Brothers and sisters, will we be faithful to what God has called us to do, to simply be faithful to pray and be in the word and make sure Jesus more and more is the center of our lives? May you and I be men and women of faithfulness in this seemingly random world. Then the final challenge, the final encouragement I see the preacher giving us in this section is open your eyes to eternity. Open your eyes to eternity. Don't just be focused on what's right here around you. A number of years ago, Corvin Kuklinski, who became a great friend of mine, I spent a lot of time with him, was very active, very uh, good athlete. He was a biker. He was riding his bike one day, got distracted by what was immediately around him, and he looked up too late. And in front of him was a landscape trailer that was illegally parked in the bike lane. He hit it going full speed, broke his neck. He was not paralyzed, but it damaged his spinal column. So for the next three years, he lived in horrible pain until the Lord graciously took him home. But I've thought about that often, and I I think that's a, a picture for us of how too often we get caught up in what's right around us in our world and doing the mundane and just making, trying to make life work and get by and survive financially and all this. And we don't look at the big picture of what God is doing. And so in these last verses, it's a great encouragement to make sure we keep our eyes open to eternity. Notice verse 7, the light's pleasant. It's good for the eyes to see the sun. Verse 9, rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Now, I think he's being sarcastic there. (laughs) Yeah, do whatever you want, young person. And yet, know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and prime of life are fleeing. What's he saying? I think he's saying live with your eyes wide open. Wide open to the fact that God is active. We, we may not see life's a mystery, yes, but God is at work. The kingdom of God is expanding. He's doing, he's accomplishing his purposes and your actions matter. God will bring to judgment, you to judgment for all that you do. Now, Our hope is in Christ, right? But what he's saying is our lives matter. They impact what we do, our actions, and they impact others as well. So verse 10, I think, is encouragement, especially to young people, but to all of us. Deal with the pain in your heart, the trauma, the struggles you have. All of us have pain. All of us have trauma. We live in a broken, fallen world. But what happens is young people think, Okay, well, I'm just going to find happiness somewhere. And they reject and ignore God. It happens over and over again in young people's lives. And he's saying, no, no, don't do that. Remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body as a young person. In other words, get help. (laughs) Deal with the pain in your heart so you can learn to live life not as a fool, but as a wise person who learns to trust God and remembers God in your youth. Because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. 
This is a challenge for all of us, really, to come to Jesus for healing, for life, and to make our life centered on knowing him and living for him. To live as Jesus did, to say, not my will, but yours be done, Father. If we really look at life under the sun and we look at life and we're honest about it, it feels very random. It feels like our actions don't matter. And the good life seems really out of our control. We can't make it happen. So where life seems random and good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people, how should we live in this kind of world? Well, number one, avoid folly. Learn to depend on God. Learn to put your life in his hands and truly rely on him. Secondly, live generously. Don't don't hoard what you have. God loves you. He'll take care of you. Learn to be even wasteful, unreasonably wasteful, unreasonably generous with what you have. Live faithfully. Do the duty that God's placed before you. Love your spouse. Love your kids. Be honest and faithful at work, wherever you are. Be true to what God's called you to do. And then finally, open your eyes to eternity. Remember that your actions matter. They matter for eternity. And what we do on earth impacts our lives and the lives of others around us forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that Ecclesiastes doesn't pull any punches. It really is true to what life is like and the struggles and the frustrations and the emptiness that life brings when we look to it for fulfillment. May we, each of us in this room, be people who live wisely, who live intentionally in this world that can seem so random, may we learn to rely on you and trust you for life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.